How should the church relate to the world? It's a question we've been forced to ask ourselves over the last few years. It used to be that the church's values were the same as those of Australian society. A good percentage of people at least attended church. Most kids went to Sunday school and school scripture. Churches were the focus of community life. The the opinions of Christian leaders were respected. Shops and businesses were closed on Sundays. Abortion was illegal. The majority of weddings took place in churches performed by ministers. Divorce was difficult. Marriage was accepted as being between a man and a woman. Boys were boys and girls were girls. But not anymore. We can't pretend Australia is a Christian country. It may have a Christian heritage, but today Australia is thoroughly secular and Christian opinions aren't just ignored, they're widely ridiculed and criticised. But perhaps that's not a bad thing, especially if it means we go back to the Bible and examine who we are in God's eyes and then how he wants us to live in the world. How should the church relate to the world? One mistake is that we circle the wagons. That means we form little communities and we cut off from everything that's not Christian. Some denominations do that. The other mistake is to blend in, to conform to the opinions and the behaviour of the world, to ignore the Bible to the point where we're indistinguishable, we're the same as everybody else. Some denominations do that. But in these verses, Peter would give us a different answer. He says, on the one hand, you don't belong. You're fundamentally different. But, on the other hand, you do belong. You belong to God. You've come to Jesus. And that means you have a whole new identity and purpose to live in the world, to love it, to live good lives and to commend Jesus to people, to be in the world but not of it, to be salt and light. So how should the church relate to the world? Peter begins by looking at who the church is. That's verses 4 to 10. And then in verses 11 and 12 he commands what we should do. Now we might want to say, let's just go straight to what we do, go straight to the action. But it's only when we get to verse 11 that we find a command, something to do. Everything that comes before that from verse 4 to 10 is a description. This is who you are. This is who you are. This is who you are. Because for Peter it all begins with what you think about. It begins in the mind. Do you remember back a couple of weeks ago, chapter 1, verse 13, prepare your minds for action. Be self-controlled. Set your hope fully on the grace to be given you. He says the same thing over in chapter 4. The end of all things is near, therefore be clear-minded and self-controlled so that you can pray. And only then, at chapter 4, verse 8, he goes on and gives some instructions. Above all, love each other deeply, love covers a multitude of sins, offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Uh, For Peter, who you are comes before what you do. Integrity before impressions. 
character before congratulations. Uh, It's something professional football and cricket teams are realising with the various scandals recently about behaviour. They're now talking about team culture, about performance being secondary to personality, about being part of a team, about being a decent human being, being willing to fit in and to learn and to share. And the talk is if a team can get those things right, then the results will follow. Uh, But personality coming before performance, that was a song Peter was singing long before sports psychologists came up with it. (laughs) Who you are determines what you do. And so Peter begins by describing the main difference between the church and the world. And it's all to do with the attitude you have to Jesus. See there in verse 4? As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by men, but chosen by God. On the one hand, the church is joined to Jesus. On the other hand, the world rejects Jesus. To the world, Jesus is a figure for philosophical or moral or historical study. Perhaps he's a myth or he's harmless and irrelevant or maybe he's a lunatic. But we've come to him. Verse 7 says, he's precious to us. The world looks at Jesus hanging on a cross and they see foolish defeat. They see a disappointed and broken man. But we look at Jesus on a cross and we see a powerful sacrifice. We see God in the flesh in willing, loving submission to death. We've come to Jesus but the world has rejected him. And the image Peter uses is that Jesus is a living stone which is a strange thing, isn't it? A living stone. He's got a few Old Testament prophecies in mind, like Isaiah 28. Jesus is God's chosen and precious cornerstone, the foundation of the walls for a building. But then Peter adds to that image. When Christians come to Jesus, when they trust Jesus, verse 5, they become living stones as well because they're joined to Jesus who is the life-giving stone. And when we're joined to Jesus, that means God is building us into a house, a spiritual house, just like a bricklayer lays a wall. He begins with one nice straight brick and then he lays the rest. God is building us. He's growing us. He's uniting us. And he's using Jesus as the foundation stone, the first stone, straight, square, strong. And so the rest of the building is solid and square because each stone is connected to the cornerstone, to Jesus. That's the picture of the church. And so for us, we come to Jesus, he's our foundation, but the world rejects the stone, that's Jesus. And Peter finds some Old Testament prophecies for that as well. Uh, Verse 7, he quotes Psalm 118. Uh, He's the stone the builders rejected. Wrong size, wrong shape, wrong colour, faulty and so he's thrown into the scrap heap. And then in verse 8 he quotes Isaiah chapter 8. He's also a stone that causes men to stumble. 
if you like, he's the rock on the footpath that you trip over as you walk along. What's that about? Well, when people disobey the message they hear about Jesus, when they reject him and say, I'm not interested, they're tripped up. They miss out. It leads to their rejection, to their judgement by God. But on the other hand, we have come to Jesus. We've trusted him for our forgiveness and our salvation. And so that means, in the words, in verse 6, in the words of Isaiah 28, we don't stumble over Jesus. Uh, Isaiah 28 says, we'll never be put to shame. The one who trusts in this stone will never be put to shame. That means we won't be disappointed. We won't miss out on the thing we hope for. Life may be tough. Life probably will be tough, but for the one who trusts in the living stone, God will prove faithful in the end, despite the way things may appear at the moment. And that's another difference between us, the church, and the world. God's attitude to us. God rejects those who reject Jesus, the living stone. But did you notice what he thinks of his church? There's a little phrase hidden at the end of verse 5. Verse 5 describes God's purpose for his house, his spiritual house, the church, to be a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices. Now he's using the language of Israel's temple system. But what we do in church looks nothing like the temple sacrifices once a day in this one particular place. Because God is interested in something much bigger than that. He's interested in our obedience in all of life. If we read through the rest of 1 Peter, we can find out the sort of thing Peter means when he's talking about spiritual sacrifices, offering spiritual sacrifices. It's not burning candles. It's not sacrificing animals. What God wants to see is to live your lives in reverent fear. Live your lives in reverent fear. Chapter 1, verse 17. He wants you to rid yourself of malice and deceit and envy. Chapter 2, verse 1. Chapter 2, verse 11. He wants you to abstain from sinful desires. Chapter 2, verse 13. Submit to earthly rulers. Chapter 2, verse 18. Slaves submit to their masters. Husbands, be considerate of their wives. Chapter 3, verse 7. Chapter 4, verse 9. Offer hospitality. Use whatever gift you have to serve others. And then in chapter 4, verse 11, we see why you should do all of these things. If anyone serves, he should do it with the strength God provides so that in everything God might be praised. To him be the glory. They're the spiritual sacrifices we offer as a spiritual house that's been built on Jesus. But notice what little phrase comes next in verse 5. Offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Only a little phrase, but think about it. Lives that are lived in grateful obedience to Jesus, done with a motivation that God would be praised, are acceptable to God. He loves them. He looks, up, he looks at our lives and says, yes. Isn't that incredible? He's pleased with what we do. Not because they're perfect, not because our actions are perfect. They'll never be perfect. But they're acceptable through Jesus Christ. 
because of what Jesus has done. God looks at our obedience, that's sometimes alright and sometimes we stumble and fall over and we try again and we say sorry and God looks at us and says, yes, that's acceptable. That's another difference between us and the world. On the one hand, God has destined the disobedient to stumble over Jesus, to be judged. Verse 8, but on the other hand, he's chosen the church for something else. Uh, Verse 9, he describes that in a slightly different way. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. This group of Christians in this place and that place and this little house here and that city over there and spread all over the place, they've been chosen by God, a priesthood by royal appointment. Alex and Luke have just bought a pram. They they bought one, I think it's called a grey cross or something, but apparently it's it's the, the pram of royal appointment in England. It's made in England and and, uh, you know, it's got the royal crest on it. You know, this is what the pram that the royals choose. You know, it's by royal appointment. Well, that's what God's done with us. We're, we're priests, royal priesthood. We've been chosen by royal appointment. The king's own priests, a holy nation who belong to God, scattered everywhere, different languages, different racial groups, but they're united as God's people. And each of those descriptions, once again, comes from the Old Testament, describing Israel. Most obviously, back in Exodus 19, God has chosen Israel, he's he's brought them out of Egypt and he's brought them to the foot of Mount Sinai and he says in verse 6 of Exodus 19, Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now you could see what that looked like there at the foot of Mount Sinai, a million people, that's a holy nation. The Jews knew exactly who they were, how they fitted into the world, chosen by God, a kingdom of priests who who represented God before men and who represented men before God. That was the goal anyway. And Peter's point is that the New Testament saints spread in churches all over the place. They belong together, they belong to God, just as much as the Jews did. And just like Israel was chosen for a purpose, he's chosen the church for a purpose as well, uh, to be a royal priesthood, second half of verse 9, who declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. He's called us and saved us for a reason, to list his virtues to describe his qualities, to highlight his highlights. We're to respond to God's action with actions of our own. God has spoken his call to us and we're to speak our praise about him. Now who to? Who, to whom are we declare, to declare the praises? Well, it could mean we declare them to God, we praise him, that's certainly what we must do. Uh, we worship God, we thank him, we praise him for what he's done. It could mean we declare his praises to each other and that's certainly what we're doing this morning. We encourage each other, we, we read the Bible and pray and sing. Now, there's something enormously encouraging about 
singing these sorts of words to each other. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth and followed thee. That's singing the praises, isn't it, of the one who's called us out of darkness into light. So we could be singing them to God, we could be singing them to each other, but I wonder if Peter's not thinking more of declaring God's qualities to those who don't know them. Declaring them to the world, declaring the praises of the one who's called us out of darkness into light. Who needs to hear that message? Surely it's people who are in darkness. They need to hear the praises of the one who can move them from darkness into light. Imagine you're part of a large group of people who go caving and get trapped in a cave. Days go past. You can hear the rescuers searching for you. Eventually a small group of you wander down a narrow passage and the rescuers with their bright lights and their strong ropes and their confident plans and their food and their water, they find you and they lead you to safety. What do you do? Who would you want to list their virtues to? Well, you might thank the rescuers, thank you so much for rescuing me, but who would you speak to next? Those of you who've been rescued? Oh, isn't it wonderful that we're rescued? I reckon you'd go straight down that passage and you'd say, come on, come, the rescuers are here, come this way, they're fantastic, they've got everything you need. You wouldn't sit around in freedom outside, you'd be yelling back down the tunnel. Here's the light, here's the rescue, here's strong hands and good gear and first aid, come this way. That's declaring the praises of the one who called you out of darkness. Well, finally in verse 11, we finally get to our first instruction. We've seen who we are, now we get to what you should do. Verse 11, Dear friends, I urge you, as aliens and strangers in the world, to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul, live such good lives among the pagans, that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Now, first thing to notice, yes, we have a command here, but even this command, it begins with who you are. Do you notice? As aliens and strangers, tourists, immigrants. It's a summary of everything he's just said. You don't fit in. As people who don't fit in, you're different. You've come to Jesus, others reject him. You're a royal priesthood. So, be different. As people who are different, be different. And there's two commands about how to be different. One is a negative and one is a positive. First, the negative, abstain. Abstain from sinful desires that war against your soul. The word for abstain has the idea of keep your distance. Steer clear. Now, if you're only a tourist, that 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 makes sense, I think. Last year when we were in Thailand we visited some local food markets and there was some delicious food, Thailand's full of delicious food, but there's also some food that, well, you'd want to steer clear of. There were all sorts of crunchy insects to eat, crickets and cockroaches in big bowls that you could just buy a handful of them. There were various bits of pig that you don't see too often in Australian butchers. 
bits of offal and the pig's head. There's a photo there on the back page of your, your sheet. And then there were chilies, chilies everywhere, just drying on roofs and big baskets of chilies. I love chilies, but I reckon I'd want to steer clear of that many chilies. They really would war against not my soul, but my digestion. That's the way we're to think of sinful desires. Uh, steer clear of them, flee them. Uh, sinful desires, the passions of the flesh, pleasure, greed, power, those things look attractive, but they damage your soul. They, they scar it, they wound it. God says, be passionate about something different. Don't be passionate about those things. Be passionate about declaring the praises of the one who called you out of darkness. Well, that's the negative, flee. The positive is in verse 12, uh, live such good lives among the pagans, Peter urges. Uh, Notice firstly that we're to live among the pagans. The word is live in the nations. Live such good lives in the nations. It's the same word that we are a holy nation. Same word. We're to be a holy nation who are in the nations. We're not to separate into a little holy huddle. We're to go to work in regular jobs, play regular sport, go to regular parties, go on holidays. We need Christian doctors and miners and builders and teachers, Christian lawyers and policemen and zookeepers, Christian artists and academics and scientists. We're to live among the world, but we're not to be the world. Live such good lives, verse 12 says. Be different, be salt and life. In verse 9 we're declaring the praises. Now we're to combine those words with action. Words and action, the two have to go together. Words have no power if our lives don't back them up. What a tragedy when our non-Christian friends say to the hypocritical Christian, I can't hear what you're saying to me because your life is speaking too loudly. A different message. A good life. What is it? Well, it's a spiritual sacrifice we offer to God as royal priests. It's being generous with our possessions, with our time, with our compliments. It's purity in thought and actions. It's humility and forgiveness and acceptance in all our relationships. It's honesty and hard work in our work life. That's a good life. If we're living like that, when our critics look for a weakness, an inconsistency, a mistake, when they attack us for holding a different opinion to them, their words won't have any bite because they'll miss the target. They'll fire something but it'll miss. And grudgingly they'll admit, well, there's something different about you. And then you'll earn the right to speak about the excellencies of the one who called you out of darkness. You'll earn the right because you've lived a good life. And then you can offer that same rescue to them. So how should the church relate to the world? Not by separating and escaping, not by accepting and welcoming, but by being a holy nation as we live in the nations, by word and by deed 
offering spiritual sacrifices so that the world might see Jesus in us and glorify God. May that be the way it is with us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would help us to be the picture that's described here. Uh, Royal priests, a holy nation, that we might declare your praises, live good lives as strangers and aliens so that people might see Jesus in us and glorify God, uh, glorify you. Amen.